Hey, I'm David Liggett with Data Center Hawk. I have uh, Vice President Allie Greenwood with Jones Lang LaSalle's Data Center Solutions Group here with me, and we're talking about the data center industry. So, Allie, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Very excited. So, um, now you all don't know this, but I do. She just got back from New York, uh, where yes. you were being honored as a nominee for the Women in IT uh, Awards that are, I think, now hosted once a year in the United States. But talk about that and your experience there. And yes. congratulations on being nominated. That's thank awesome. you very much. It was a very, very cool event, very cool experience. It was an honor to be in the room with so many um, amazing women that are just, you know, continuing to promote the cause of, of women in IT in different industries. You know, there's everybody there from, you know, the CIO of financial institutions to people that are running, you know, the um, business um, development and COO side of Google Cloud to uh, women that are working within economic developments um, in different cities, you know, in different groups. Yeah. So it's kind of a wide variety of industry verticals of women in IT and it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. So talk about your path to getting into the data center industry. And, and you know, one thing we've we've talked about previously is just, um, you know, women in the IT industry and, and a goal, I think, for the industry to continue to offer uh, additional opportunities for women to get into the industry, and especially in the data center side of things. Sure. Um, so, but just talk about your past experience and, uh, and you know, what you're doing today and how your past experience has, has benefited you. Sure, absolutely. So I started out in the, in the data center business or my first you know entry into it is I was working for a real estate investment and development company here in Dallas Texas and we were you know helping people underwrite different opportunities helping them go raise funds and equity um, for different you know opportunistic uh, opportunities that were more on the real estate development side and towards the end um, of my tenure there we had um, some guys approach us about a data center development in Orangeburg New York that they had found that they <laughs> wanted to uh, purchase and develop um, into a data center and we had no idea what a data center was at the time uh, what it cost to build what it cost to lease you know anything about the economics but you'd read all these things about the crazy high returns and uh, the, just the different costs associated with it and it just seems so different than the other asset verticals in the uh, in the real estate industry so we went and met with a couple of different industry experts mm -hmm. um, and talked to them a little bit about data centers. And uh, one of the first people we met with was Digital Realty Trust. Okay. Um, and I sat down with the guys at Digital Realty, asked them 100 questions about data centers, wrote every answer I could down so that I could get back and, and do my job of underwriting um, the opportunity. And through that um, conversation and through that series of, of questioning with Digital Realty Trust, um, they actually said, you know, it'd be really interesting. We're kind of looking for somebody to join our portfolio management team. Yeah. Would you have an interest in coming over? And I kind of got the data center bug. Um, so it was a great opportunity, you know, uh, interesting time in the eco economy. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity to go work for a REIT. I didn't know anything about data centers, but I yeah. thought, why not? Come on. And uh, I learned everything I know today um, from, from working in that capacity over at Digital Realty. I think it was a great way to learn um, the industry because I was learning it really from the numbers side, yeah. from the ground up what it was costing us to build these things, how we were underwriting these different data center acquisitions and development opportunities, and then what we needed to lease them for in order to hit you know, return metrics that would keep all of our shareholders happy. I think that gives a really unique perspective now that I'm on the end user side, sure. on the tenant representation yep. side um, at JLL. It's been a lot of fun because I think I can offer um, a lot of insight into why and how these things are pricing the way they are, what the true total cost of ownership is, and really be able to compare the different opportunities out there for our end users and how they best fit the requirements. Yeah, it's one of the, you know, I don't think in, in our industry, I mean, there's not a lot of 
professionals that have worked on different sides of the of the industry. You know, most of the time, uh, you'll see scenarios where professionals will get involved in a certain part of the business and then stay there for a long period of time. So the fact that you have that expertise, you know, from an ownership standpoint and, um, and, and also too, during that time, you probably were able to see what a lot of different users, how a lot of different users approached their IT infrastructure requirements. So, you know, that being five to 10 years ago, now you being at JLL for a very long time, what have you seen changing with the data center user mindset? You know, you sit down with healthcare companies, technology companies, financial users, and you walk them through the process of acquiring IT infrastructure. How have you seen that change over the last several years? Quite a bit, yeah. <laughs> as technology's changed quite a bit. I would say five, ten years ago, um, we were, for the most part, convincing um, a lot of the end users to um, outsource for the very first uh-huh. time. You know, a lot of them were end users, uh, owners, operators of their own data center developments. Um, you know, whether it was on a campus or uh-huh. in a closet in their office building. And we were trying to convince them to kind of relinquish that control for the very first time, you know, move that asset from one side of the balance sheet to the other, mm-hmm. outsource some of those operations while still being able to, you know, meet the risk thresholds that they were concerned about, um, which was going to help them, you know, lower their ongoing, you know, operating cost. And that was a big, you know, that's a big pill to swallow, I think, for a lot of users at the time. Um, but. It's amazing to see how just the technology and the data center industry has shifted so much over the last 10 years to where people are just looking to outsource as much as they can now. Um, and that's kind of been the, the entrance of hyperscale cloud and what people look at, you know, these hybrid IT requirements now and how much that's changed. They're outsourcing even more. Um, but definitely five, 10 years ago, it was a completely different sell than it is today. You know, now um, our end users, their requirements, and what fits their requirements is, is just a lot different. It's all yeah. about flexibility. It's about different services that the providers offer um, and how that's going to help them get through their next five-year plan. I don't see very many end users that have a 10-year plan yeah. anymore. You know, A lot yeah. of people are going, you know, what does it look like? I can probably predict the next one to three years, yeah. but I'm not sure how much I can predict. Yeah, that. which is the great challenge for companies that are trying to figure out what they're going to do with their IT infrastructure because, you know, you make that decision for, you know, probably 12 to 36 months. And then beyond that, it's very hard to predict, number one, how technology changes. Number two, internally, from a business perspective, if you acquire additional companies and, and you know, other internal challenges that companies might have to change their IT infrastructure architecture. Um, so it's, I think it's very hard to know past, you know, a, a limited period of time what's going to work best. So your comment about flexibility, I think, makes a lot of sense. How have you seen, uh, you talked about risk. Uh, how have you seen data center users best evaluate risk? And, you know, there's different levels of that. Um, but how have you seen them, you know, best evaluate risk, uh, you know, over the short term as well as the long term? How do they do that well? How do they um, look at not from a lo- just a location standpoint, but from a technology standpoint, from, you know, who they're partnering with? What's the best way for a data center user to do that? Yeah, I think it's a difficult challenge. I don't think anybody has said that they've nailed it, right? Um, I think for the most part, people are looking, um, I hate to keep going back to the term flexibility, but they're looking for the ability to enter a true partnership with a provider, that they know that that provider is going to continue to keep themselves fresh on technology, keep themselves fresh on what's going on so that they can expand their services offering over the next couple of years. I think um, almost every one of our end users now is asking the question, you know, what's your cloud connection platform look yeah, like sure. so that we can make sure that we have access to those different options as we go forward. Um, you know, revenue portability, 
service portability. We've talked about that being kind of this new trend that's coming up. Um, but people are starting to utilize that, yeah. you know, um, utilize their spend across different connectivity options, you know, express routes to Azure, um, or even, you know, moving into some cloud platform services, some infrastructure as a service, things like that. So I think people are really looking for that flexibility uh -huh. from the in, um, in, uh, provider and looking at that as a long-term partnership. So how can they you know, mitigate risk, back yeah. to your point? Um, they can do that by making sure that whoever they're, they're partnering with is truly looking at that full scope and yeah, kind of sure. in it with them, you yeah. know, and, and having, you know, frequent whiteboard sessions once a quarter with their, you know, account rep and talking about what that roadmap looks like for them as yep. well as the provider. Yeah, you, that's a great point. If you're thinking of a, a company itself from a risk standpoint, evaluating that consistently, you've got to bring in, you know, your partners, the data center operators that you're going to be with, or even cloud providers to really understand how they're Changing moving forward because ultimately the changes they make could impact, you know, what your risk tolerance is. Um, so, you know, being with JLL, one of the top global uh, commercial real estate providers, you know, you all have relationships with companies all across the world. So obviously you focus, you know, mainly North America, but you also have requirements that take you international uh, to places across the world. Um, how are you seeing that demand from your North American clients? And are they, you know, asking you to evaluate markets in Europe, uh, markets in Asia? What have you seen from an international perspective uh, with clients that you work with? Sure. Um, it's definitely, you know, coming up now uh, more than it ever has. And I think a lot of it is driven by, um, again, to kind of go back to, you know, interconnectivity and access to um, different opportunities yeah. across the borders. So I think that we're seeing a lot more end users look at the M&A activity that yes. we're seeing on the provider yep. side or, you know, and or companies like an Equinix who has dots on the map in a lot of different places so that they understand what the provider's roadmap looks like internationally. Yep. Um, but we definitely have clients, and I think it depends a lot on the industry vertical, whether you're in the airline industry or you're in the oil and gas industry, they're always going to have kind of spots of interest to them. Um, you know, internationally that they're interested in. They want to understand what the, the market landscape looks like there. Um, we've got some great team members across yeah. um, the border, which have been very, very helpful to us when we do have a client sure. that has a requirement over yeah. there, which has been very helpful. Um, and I think that, you know, the continued change in legislation and data privacy laws will continue to help you know, clients understand what kind of footprint they need to have internationally, you know, in order to service end users across the globe. So yeah. it's definitely a, a, you know, a trend that continues and people do continue to ask questions about it. I still think that we're seeing, you know, exceptional growth, you know, across um, the United States and certainly with the hyperscale providers setting up new nodes um, internationally, there's going to be there's going to be obvious, you know, onboarding as, as we continue to look to the future. How has hyperscale, you mentioned the hyperscale cloud development, how has that changed, and, and besides the international perspective, but what other ways have you seen their growth and their development change the industry? Um, it's changed, the hyperscale providers have changed the industry dramatically. Um, you know, you see companies like Microsoft taking down 20 plus megawatts a quarter, you know, mm -hmm. across the country mm -hmm. um, in different markets. Um, I think it's changed, uh, maybe we approach it first from the, the end user perspective. I think the end users are now paying attention to what the hyperscale providers are doing and where they're setting up nodes or on ramps so that they understand where the availability zones are, et cetera. And they're, you know, looking to make sure that they're going to have uh, quality access to those cloud platforms and those cloud options and how they can best connect to those. So I think the end users are absolutely 
following where the big hyperscale providers are going. I think it's also creating an opportunity for the end users because as that demand, you know, creates supply mm-hmm. in some of these markets, mm-hmm. I think it makes a more competitive dynamic. And so you can see some pricing shifts and pricing trends when you follow some of the hyperscale cloud absorption. Um, I think from the provider side, it's changing their behavior, you know, pretty dramatically. I think you have a lot of providers now that have created a dedicated build construction product for the hyperscale providers. You know, you have these different providers that have come out and said, here's my here's my product. It's dedicated to cloud. It's a single tenant type building, and I can build it for X, and I can lease it to them for Y. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a different product than what they build on spec for, you know, Fortune 500 type client or an enterprise type client. I think you're going to start seeing some of the providers create campus ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So when they go down and you see providers take down 100 acres in Northern Virginia or Phoenix, I think you're going to see them create, you know, a campus where there's a couple of single tenant dedicated mm-hmm. buildings to these hyperscale providers. And then on the other side of the campus, there's some enterprise scale um, users and it creates almost your own little cloud ecosystem yeah. right there on yep. your own campus. Yeah, I mean, I think you've seen the land banking in major markets across the U.S. and, and by data center operators with, you know, efforts to be able to show uh, not just those large hyperscale users, but also enterprise users that, hey, we're, we're here today and we'll be here for a long time, you know, moving forward because we can grow by multiple facilities on, you know, this campus, whether that's hyperscale cloud development or, you know, facilities more geared for enterprise growth. Um, Let's talk about that enterprise, um, you know, user segment. And, you know, traditionally, I think most people in the industry would agree that, you know, let's say five to eight years ago, there were more larger one to five megawatt deals in the market. We've seen somewhat of a shift of that. There's still those deal sizes there, but, you know, some of that demand is pushing down to smaller uh, size requirements and then the additional uh, applications potentially are rolling into some of those larger hyperscale cloud deals. But that enterprise group that, you know, you all work with, what do they need to do to make the best decisions? Like, where do they start? I mean, obviously, these are, you know, companies that have teams, uh, you know, their IT group, their procurement group, their real estate group, they've they've got teams of people, but how do they start well? And then how do they work through that process well to make the best decision? Sure. Uh, You know, I think the the strategy and the, you know, defining the requirement and, and you know, upfront is huge. And then creating what a roadmap looks like for mm-hmm. one, three and five years is one of the, you know, keys to success that yeah, we've seen. Sure. So when we have people that do have teams and they say, look, here's, you know, to the best of my ability, here's our scalable demand from a one, three and a five year perspective. Here's what our, you know, roadmap looks like into public cloud and private yeah. cloud. Yeah. And here is how that's going to, you know, affect with our, you know, server cycle refreshes, because I think you're seeing a lot more of the enterprises um, starting to do server refreshes than mm-hmm. they have in the last couple of years or plan to do one very soon because that, you know, CPU has sure. changed so much, yeah. uh, the technology of that in the so last what is that? Years. So when those companies are doing those server refreshes, what, I mean, what, what does that create for the companies? What do they have to figure out as they work through that process? Right. So, um, you know, for the most part right now, based on the latest Intel CPUs that everybody's all excited about and the, the HP, you know, Apollo servers, it's creating definitely higher density environments than they've ever seen mm. before. You know, historically, when you look at a lot of the, the Fortune 500 stack, um, their densities still continue to average, you know, three to five kW mm-hmm. rack. Um, they were utilizing, you know, your standard 42-year racks, but spreading it out and, and compute was just not as dense as it is um, now with the afforded uh, new chips that yeah. are coming out. And so I think you're seeing a lot of enterprises make that big investment, doing a server 
refresh and then it's totally changing their their stack and yep. their in their cabinets and um, it's creating a lot more of a dense environment compared to before I mean we're seeing even more traditional financial institutions starting to hit you know seven and a half to 12 kW rack which years ago you it was just unheard of yeah. in that more traditional even financial institution yeah. world um, so I think that that's that's changing everything yeah. um, for them it's certainly shrinking their footprint it's trying to figure out how they scale. Um, I think they see themselves shrinking. Um, they're certainly pushing more to the cloud than yeah. they ever did before. But those server refreshes are causing them to take a look at what does their compute look like today? Yeah. What does their compute look like in three years? And what are things that they might want to virtualize, you know, based on the new technology that's available and the different, you know, cl- uh, public cloud products that are available? Do you think that uh, as those companies, you know, migrate to more efficient solutions. And, and I, I agree with you, you know, I, I feel like for probably five years walking through data centers, you know, probably, you know, 07 to 2011 ish, you would hear data center operators talk about, Hey, we can, we can, we've created a high density solution here. So we can go up to 10 KW per rack, 15 KW per rack. But the reality was there were not a lot of users that were going that high. I think today's very different. You can go into data centers today and they're not just talking about it. They're showing you, Hey, this customer is actually at, you know, 15 KW per rack or whatever it might be. Now that's not for every company. And I think it takes a lot of planning and, and a lot of the right team members to make those decisions to be able to go uh, and, and, and change to a high dense solution. But, um, you know, other than kind of changes with, uh, you know, challenges with defining the requirement, if you don't define the requirement, you're going to have problems down the road. What are some other pitfalls that you've seen companies, um, you know, um, work through? And I'll give you an example. I think one pitfall that, that, I, th- I think happens and can happen is when you know an organization is somewhat siloed. So mm-hmm. you have four different groups. You have uh, you know different um, ideas for each one of those groups. It might be the IT group. It might be the real estate group. And everybody has a different idea of what is the best solution. Yeah. And if you have one group that's running that, at the end of the day, the question is, can we get that decision across the goal line and actually get something done? And I, I think you know m- uh, my previous days doing this, I don't we don't do that anymore. But that was a challenge for us is always seeing do you have the right people sitting there to make the best decision and they can actually do something i mean do you seeing that with some of the oh, that never groups happens, that you, you um, yes quite a bit so i think um, that is a, a pitfall and i think the the best way to avoid that is getting executive buy-in from each of those silos up front yeah which is very difficult but you know to explain to a lot of our end users that you know look I think it, you know it's very important that starting right now, while we're defining the requirement and starting to issue RFPs, et cetera, that we have you know legal team prepped. Mm-hmm. We know what mm-hmm. legal resources are going to happen yeah. um, and be needed to get this thing across the finish line. We have finance involved. We'd sure. love to get finance involved early on so that they can see the first rounds of financial analysis and what we are comparing, and it shows the you know process of negotiation yeah. going forward. Uh, procurement, you know, if there's hmm. procurement teams that that need to be involved and that have been involved in the past, it's important to keep them um, apprised because they kind of understand how to open and close out, you know, particular orders and in, in, in business within the silo. Certainly IT, because yeah, they're sure. the ones planning it. Need them. Um, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> they're the ones who that will absolutely define the requirement, put the requirement together. Um, and then sometimes you have, you know, kind of a real estate facilities sure. uh, role. Depends on, sometimes it's both, sometimes it's one or the other. Um, but, you know, absolutely because they understand kind of what that process looks like, going out and, and sourcing different opportunities, evaluating different facilities, taking it all the way through a negotiation process. Yeah. And I think the more that you can get all of those groups involved earlier, Rather than bringing them all in later, 
um, you get uh, faster buy-in, you get faster approvals internally, yeah. and the project's much more successful, and it causes everybody, you know, a much more um, pleasant experience yeah, throughout sure. the whole process. Yeah. What are the dangers of only evaluating one solution? So, you know, I think. Um, you know, if I'm an organization and it takes, you know, I, I get those people in the same group and we, we get running down one path uh, and that seems to be the right path, but we're not looking at other paths simply because it's hard enough to get everybody on the same page. You know, what am I potentially setting myself up for from a company perspective? You know, am I, am I missing out on efficiencies? And what are, what are some of the things that you see that a one solution path uh, you know, is going to set you up for from a pitfall perspective? Sure. I think, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you still end up back at that one solution and that preferred provider maybe that you had you had talked to and had the most interaction with mm -hmm. at the end of the day. But I think sometimes you don't understand what's out there and what opportunities you might be missing until yeah. you've seen the full yeah. display of it. And so I found that even um, clients or end users of ours that have maybe had their, you know, heart set on one provider, they had had a good experience with the provider, they had toured that provider earlier on and had a lot more dialogue with them, they might still end up uh, being the best choice for them at yes. the end of the day. Yep. But at the end of the day, what they end up signing up with them for is a little bit different because they learned, sure. you know, for better or for worse, by soliciting the market, understanding the different options and the services that are out there yep. and the different flexibility you know, points that are available to them. I think that they learn a lot about maybe something that they wanted or needed that mm -hmm. they didn't know about early on because yeah. They were basically being sold a solution versus driving what that solution could be. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think sometimes when you go down a, a little bit of a silo with one provider, um, it, you know, it gets a little bit one one size fits all. Yeah. Um, versus when you're really truly solution selling and you're you're having other people solution sell yeah. for you. Yeah. You know, you're creating the requirement and then the solution together, and then you can kind of go back to that provider maybe that you think is your gut choice and what your gut instinct is and give them kind of a new set of, of options to look at. Yeah. So it just gives you a new kind of fresh look on things. So I think not only is it important from a negotiation perspective to make sure that you're getting a fair market deal um, that's going to set your you know organization up and you can look up the organization to the CFO and said, I ran the process, I understand, I feel like this is a good deal, that's what's going on in the marketplace today, but you're also getting you know a much better service because you've understood what's really out there. That's good. Um, Okay, so let's talk about compliance. So, you know, you all work with a number of different types of users, uh, not just from the industry vertical standpoint, but also from, um, you know, size of companies, smaller companies, larger companies. Um, how have you seen compliance change what companies or how companies look at the market? Sure. Uh, compliance plays into every single one of our end user requirements. Um, and I've noticed even really in the last year that the way people meet requirements has changed quite a bit. So, hmm. you know, when a client comes through and says, I need PCI compliance, well, you know, before that absolutely meant that they needed to have a cage topper and they needed to have, you know, cage material from floor to deck, and, uh -huh. uh, et cetera. Well, now there's a lot of different ways to solve for PCI compliance. You can hmm. have, you know, infrared beams at the top of the cage material. You know, there's mm -hmm. just a lot of different ways that people can solve for it than there has been before, which has been really interesting. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think, you know, compliance is the heart of, uh, we, we do a lot of um, airline industry sure. uh, requirements. And yeah. as you can imagine, those are, <laughs> there's a, a lot of uh, compliance that are associated with those requirements. Um, but I think compliance has just become a, an absolutely necessary item for every provider to have. And, you know, I highly recommend, and I think the providers show a lot better when they have a dedicated compliance team, or at least somebody on their team that that's all they're doing they're is focused making sure on that, that they're yep. keeping up with all the compliance um, that are necessary. But it's almost some, I mean, I, 
I don't I can tell you the last time I walked to a data center that wasn't SOC 2 yeah. PCI yeah. compliant. Um, yeah. they're, they're just becoming absolutely necessary items. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think the same way I would look at, you know, the redundancies built into, you know, power and, and uh, cooling and things like that, the assumption like this is, you know, our expectation this never goes down. I think there is, too, an expectation on the compliance side of things, the basic compliances that are adhered to by data center operators that they'll have. And then if there's additional, you know, you have some data center operators that I feel like are focused on government type of compliances or maybe healthcare uh, that's driven more by like an indus uh, industry vertical. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's been really interesting to watch. How do you, so from a cloud standpoint, you know, how do you think, uh, enterprises and companies can best evaluate how to uh, look at their infrastructure and figure out what applications need to, you know, remain in a uh, company-controlled environment, like either a co-location facility or, you know, their on-premise environment, and then what they can really put into the cloud. Like, what really makes sense from that perspective? How are you seeing companies evaluate that successfully? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of different ways. I think a lot of companies bring in, you know, third-party consultants okay. um, to come in and help them look at application workloads and migrations and yep. what makes the most sense for them. Um, so we see a lot of companies go that route. Yep. I think another big factor that plays into it is security, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people look at, you know, if email goes down in the middle of the night for a little bit or there's something, you know, that's okay. Yep. But then there are items like, you know, financial transactions yeah. or insurance policies yeah. or things like that that Not might okay. have social security yeah. numbers, et cetera. Yeah. Um, those need to be in an environment where yeah. somebody can't go stick a thumb drive in the server and download yes. things and walk out, um, et cetera. So um, I think that security plays into it quite a bit, um, as well as, you know, reliability and high availability, depending on what the application and what the workload is. Um, we are seeing more clients, I think, even within you know, financial institutions utilize a hybrid of public and private cloud yes. because public, you know, you can put things out there that you might not need as high of security yep. and compliance around. Um, and then you can still utilize cloud in some form or fashion yep. um, and get out of the, the business of purchasing, you know, dedicated infrastructure and doing server maintenance and things like that by utilizing private cloud. So yeah. we're seeing a lot of clients either build their own private cloud or utilize you know, some sort of private cloud service that a prov their own you know, colo provider yeah. has um, to offer. So we're seeing a good mix and I'm seeing more clients really set up their own private cloud stack um, just hmm. to utilize that type of mentality of virtual machines and spinning up you know, workloads and instances just internally for their own internal business units than we ever saw before. Yeah. Well, you know, the, I mean, the data center industry changes quickly, you know, technology changes quickly. When you think about the next five years and just how much change has occurred in the last five years, but right. you know, what do, what do you get most excited about? I mean, what do you look at and think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with these things over the next five years? I mean, I think, you know, the obvious elephant in the room is, is how do, how does cloud play into all of this? Mm -hmm. You know, you're seeing these hyperscale cloud providers go out and buy ma take down massive amounts of data center capacity in space um, because they're seeing so much velocity, I assume, with clients signing up for cloud services. Yeah. You know, we're all storing more data now than we ever did before, and we still want to see our wedding pictures from seven years ago, eight <laughs> years ago, ten years ago. We still want to make sure that the video that we took, at the, you know, of our kid in the hospital on the first day they were born yeah. is available 15 years from of now. Course. We want it to load yeah. immediately. We don't want to wait <laughs> yeah. for a spinning 
mini beach ball for 30 yeah. seconds, right? So I think that we're driving a lot of that, yeah. you know, you know, demand yep. and absorption because we're requiring all of our stuff to be saved forever yep. and instantly available to us. Um, so I think that that's going to obviously continue to grow. And I think people are going to find new ways to take advantage of it. Um, and I think what will be really interesting to see is, you know, how connectivity plays into that. Uh, you know, I totally talk agree. About yeah driverless cars and things like that. If you can imagine taking, you know, 10% of the, the population of New York City and making just those cars, you know, uh, autonomous yep. and driverless, you now are putting a basically a supercomputer on board of yep. every single car in a, you know, 30 block radius right. um, with, you know, high rises all around it. How is that internet traffic going to be able to communicate effectively and in a timely manner yep. to be able to really transmit all that data? So it's going to be really interesting to see how that affects our world in yeah. terms of connectivity. You, know? you bet. So um, I think all of that will be really interesting following, you know, driverless cars, big data, data analytics, how we're starting to use a lot of that yeah. data because we're finally collecting a lot of it that we never did 10, yeah. 15 years ago. So how people start using it. Um, but I think from just purely getting back to the data center industry, it's, you know, just truly that flexibility around, you know, utilizing different services, private cloud, public cloud, colo. I, I would be shocked if somebody that's signing up for a data center footprint today has that exact same data center footprint, you know, five, seven years from yeah. now. It's just not going to happen. So how do they have that, you know, confidence that they'll be able to shift around those services and be able to utilize their IT and their technology effectively for their company? Yeah. You know, 2017, I know you know this, but 2017 was one of the largest years as it relates to M&A activity in the data center industry. So obviously that has a very large impact on the investor community. It has a very large impact on data center operators from a competitive standpoint, as well as, you know, uh, acquiring one company, acquiring another company. But how does that impact a data center user? How does it impact a company that's looking to place their IT infrastructure? You know, there's, you know, we think in 2018, there will be, uh, you know, a significant amount of M&A activity as well. So how does all of that um, truly impact the data center user? Um, so I think it, you know, it does vary a little bit by industry vertical. If you're a data center user that um, your core business is not necessarily technology yeah. and, and constantly refreshing a, a software as a service type company or something like that, I think you are going to really need to pay attention and rely a lot more on your data center partner, your provider sure. as a partner, yep. and making sure that you know if they are potentially up for sale, who's going to buy them, those kind of things, having flexibility in your contract to be able to you know, potentially get out of that situation if you need to, um, because I think it's going to be really important for them to pick a provider that truly is constantly evolving yeah. as a data center, you know, in the data center industry. Yes. I think if you're a more technology savvy company that's really, you know, pretty self-operatable, but you're in, an, in a data center colo because you're looking for them to provide the capital and the roof and, and take care of the, you know, the the edges and the peripheral, um, I think that you you can potentially be you know more at ease from a more passive investor that might own the asset that you yeah. sit in because you're going to be really really active. You're probably going to have you know teams on site that mm -hmm. are constantly um, you know touching your hardware and, yeah. and things like that every day. So I think it depends a little bit on the industry vertical. Very cool. I want to change gears totally. Okay. okay. Did you fill out a NCAA bracket? I did. Okay, so let's talk. <laughs> There's March. not much left. <laughs> okay. but yes. Let's talk March Madness for a minute. How did how did your bracket go? Do you have any teams left in the finals? Uh, I have Duke, and okay. yeah. um, that's it's slim slim to none. After that, I have Kansas yes. left. Um, okay. 
but it's, it's getting so we have okay so we have i did have i felt like i picked a dark horse i had xavier going all the way oh okay which was not the popular pick okay that's my impre- husband was not thrilled about it but <laughs> so be okay. so we have uh, i guess left in it we have uh, kansas and villanova and then Loyola, Chicago, and Michigan. Right. Do you want to predict a winner right now? Who you think? And I'll do it too. Let's see. Uh, you know, I'm out gonna, of those four, who would you? Know, you? I'm going to pick Kansas. Go all the way. Yep. Because I'm a Big Twelve girl. That's you know, right. At the end of the day. That's so I right. Pick Big Twelve, as are you. But okay, I am a Big Twelve person. I did watch the Kansas Duke game. I was. That's probably one of the best games of the tournament. If you did watch it, I mean, it was really good. Um, so it's it's hard to choose against Kansas, but I'm going to. Uh, so I'm going to pick Villanova. Okay. I think I, I think they uh, they have the best shot at this point. So I'm going to get probably hated on by KU fans, but because <laughs> I have a bunch of buddies that are KU fans, right. not that they'd be watching our data center talk uh, <laughs> moment here. Anyway, hey, thank you so much for doing this. It's so yeah. fun to sit down with thank you. you. And and uh, if you want to find out more about uh, Allie's group and their practice, you can get on Jones Lang LaSalle's website. Go to their data center uh, solutions group, and uh, her team uh, focuses on North American um, data center projects, but they obviously can help uh, companies across uh, the globe and so anyway thank you for your insight congratulations on being nominated for your award thank you and uh, we look forward to getting you back in here down the road sounds good thanks for having us thank you